Welcome back. This is the Sunday Show. I'm Rodney Cyrus. I hope you're well. And thanks for listening. In the last episode, we discussed players chasing data, their data. Since then, everyone has probably used their phone a minimum of five times a day, posting to Instagram, posting to Facebook, posting to YouTube, along with sending messages to loved ones on WhatsApp and text. Who is checking the data that you've just sent? Who owns the data that you've just sent? Who owns the cloud where it is saved? What happens to the data once you've deleted it from your phone? You don't have an idea? Neither do I. Which is why I was very pleased when the football players who have played football are chasing their data. They want to know what's happened to their data and who's using it. And I want to know if they're successful. There is no news at the moment in terms of this front, but I will keep an eye on where this story may go and get back to you. Well, for this episode, we begin at the beginning of the week just past. We visit a sport a million miles away from the world of football, which I love in varying degrees. I do love football a lot, but we go to a world of hockey. I know very little about hockey. And when I was a child, I didn't enjoy playing it during my school days. I attended a school which had a concrete playground. There was no grass. There was no luxury. Anyway, my reason for looking at hockey today was due to the story in the Guardian newspaper on Monday by Sean Ingram, which declared that the English hockey system has an endemic race issue from top to bottom. The article byline goes straight to the heart of the matter, stating the problem, and that this is what it is, stating the problem. And I want to be very clear before I go on, and you will note I did not say alleged problem. Anyway, back to the byline. The byline quote by the chairman of Barford Tigers, he stated, and he, it stated, if you are not white, middle class, and or have not come through the private school system, your chances of playing for GB, that's Great Britain in terms of the hockey world, in a major tournament are greatly diminished. With a statement such as this, one will try to argue, and there are many, and claim, I'm sure, that this is not a true reflection of hockey. But how many well-known clubs that you know, if you know any, actually take their sport to the people of this nation beyond the realms that they normally do? Or do they keep it to a small section and small groups within their society? Do they go beyond their neighbourhoods and share it? Do they talk at length about it with individuals who never actually play the game? The claim about hockey's restricted nature regarding access was sent in a letter to the England's hockey chief, chief executive, Nick Pink. The letter urges the organisation to tackle a culture where talented black, Asian and minority ethnic players are scared to report racism for fear it might affect their chances of progressing. Within the article, there is a warning that BAME players are being stereotyped too much and they're being stereotyped in a way that players are seen that they foul more and that they are less fit if they are from the BAME background. The author of the letter is a Gurmaj Singh Pawar. He is the chairman of Barford Tigers, which are an inner city Birmingham-based club, and they play in the third tier. 
His letter made a number of points and was co-signed by eight other clubs across the country from London, Leicester, Derby, Nottingham and Leeds. Some of the key points mentioned in the letter are Black and Asian players from the lowest junior levels upwards are stereotyped as being more likely to engage in foul play and less fit than their white counterparts. Coaches in England hockey setup have told players that they should not play for more ethnically diverse clubs as it could be a detriment to their game. Young players and young people from inner cities no longer see themselves or hockey as a sport for all or no, no longer see themselves in the world of hockey where it is a sport for all and only see it as a sport for a few and it's not for them. And the other point or one of the other points is more needs to be done to make the sports more inclusive and tackle racism and increase the efforts and support clubs to attract players from socially deprived and BAME backgrounds. Sally Mundell, who is also mentioned in the article, has led England hockey up until 2019. She declared that despite being proud of her achievements in her previous role, she acknowledges that she should have done more to increase diversity in the game. Well, let's wait and see, shall we? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Well, with regards to one of the points in the letter, and this is the key thing for me, um, the clubs should try to attract players from socially deprived and BAME backgrounds. Well, one of the things that's always thrown up whenever there's an issue of in terms of disparity, if there's a lack of engagement, or if they say there's a lack of equality of access, is always, they call it hard to reach. They say that these sections of society, these neighbourhoods, these communities are hard to reach. Let me be clear, it is not hard to reach. Those communities are not hard to reach. They have been left behind. They have been neglected. They have been ignored but they are not hard to reach not at all moving away from the world of hockey hockey with a hop and a skip and a jump we go elsewhere now throughout the week so many things caught my eye and one of them was a transfer rumor news and as much as i love football it was about manchester united the club that i love and i followed from a child and it was how much money that manchester united were going to spend on one player how much money where they're going to pay one player's wages and so on and so on. And the conversation seemed to spiral out of control. We look at the depths in terms of a deal and other deals that go over the line, the big stories in terms of how they relate to fans and all of those things in terms of the return to stadiums. But with regards to this deal, with regards to the potential transfer of one young man from one club to another club, with the backdrop of coronavirus, where people, everyday people, those in sky blue, light blue uniforms are battling to save lives, where people are battling to save their, their jobs, worry about whether they have money to pay their bills, feed their children, actually eat a meal that is worthwhile in terms of depending on whether it was a, 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 a buy one, get one free, or whether it was veg that they could cook for themselves. We witness in the news a world far removed from everyone else a world far removed from normal life where one player can move from a club for 80, 90, 100, 150 million, who knows, and be paid close to 200 million 
or 200,000, should I say, 200 million, could you believe it? 200,000 pounds a week. That these are the storylines that people are talking about and they do so and they talk about them as if they are absolutely normal. In a world where people are dying of hunger, where people are worried about paying the next bill, we talk about these things as if they are normal and they are not normal. And as much as I love football, as much as I support Manchester United, when I see those things, I absolutely feel sad. I actually feel sad. I feel sad that there is no equity, no no balance, there's no moral centre in the world of football that says, you know what, we've reached the limit and we need to say enough. And some will say, you cannot stop or cap someone's wage, their capability or their ability to earn money in a world where greed comes first. You cannot do that. But then at the same time, you don't expect those individuals to say no. But then we look around at the fans and supporters who don't have that kind of money, who don't have that kind of wealth, and we expect them to pay through the nose for season tickets, for overpriced replica kits, whether it's in blue, whether it's in white, whether it's in light grey. Where is the money coming from? It's sad. It's very, very sad. But elsewhere in the world of football, apart from transfers that are really upsetting me, there was a question, a serious question, about fans, supporters returning to the stadium to support their team with a drink in their hand. Should supporters be allowed to drink in their seats? Should supporters be allowed to drink by the side of the pitch? A story which ran for a few hours in a day earlier in the week. A story about football and alcohol would run and run. Alcohol and football have never really been a good mix. Historically, these two elements do not go well and tend to end with enhanced poor behaviour, increased levels of abuse, increased levels of racial abuse, increased levels of sexual abuse, physical abuse, you name it. And some will say, you've got no facts to prove it. You've got no proof. And some will say, yeah, you're probably right. I don't have proof. But I've never seen anyone behave really, really well when they've had too much to drink. Never. There has been a drinking ban at football grounds since the 1980s. And for good reason too, because the game needed to move away from the bad old days and the disaster which beset that period of time. Because it was all about a certain thing. The pre-Premier League era was about going to football and getting lashed. And having a punch up. That's what it was about. I posted a tweet poll and asked the question, would this be a good thing for fans to actually be able to drink by the pitch or drink in their seat? And for those who answered, it was in favour of those wanting to drink. And I'm not a drinker. Those who wanted to drink thought this was great. This was something that they could get into and it would bring them back into the football world. Despite not having money, despite worrying about whether they're going to lose their job, despite having to buy their season ticket on a credit card which they'll have to pay off for the rest of the year, they thought that buying alcohol and sitting next to the pitch and, and from their seat would be just the thing that they would go along with. It was going to be okay. How would a father and son, a grandfather and son, a mum and daughter, a mum and son, how would their experience of going to football change now? 
if footballers, also footballers, or football fans or supporters are allowed to drink by the side of the pitch, whilst they're watching football, when they're allowed to return to the grounds, when they're allowed to return to the stadium, how would that experience change? How would it move in a very different way? Would it go forward? Would it enhance the experience? I doubt it. The question in itself about should they be allowed to drink by the pitch, should they be allowed to drink alcohol from in their seats and watch the game is multidimensional. And it's it's one of the many options that seems to have come from a government where they have contradictory information, even though the facts are known, or should I say assumed, about alcohol and behaviour. You know, there's the go home, stay home, but go to work. If you can't go to work, go to work. If you can't go to work, stay at home. If you don't go to school, work from home, but don't congregate outside the pub, but you can go to the pub and don't wear a face covering, uh, but you can wear a face covering. And, you know, it's just confusion. The list goes on. And I think, in all fairness, from me, a non-drinking football supporter who's attended games, it doesn't make sense. And I see how much alcohol is consumed on a trip from London to Manchester when I travel. I travel by train and eight o'clock in the morning, there is a lot of alcohol consumption. The cans come out of the bag and there is drinking and there is lots of drinking and there is more drinking. And this is seven hours before kickoff. And then you get to the ground and there's a quick few pints outside the ground in a pub close to the ground. And then there's a swift drink during half time. And then there's a swift drink with mates after the game. The scenario I paint is a well-rehearsed scene. It happens all the time. Trying to get fans to drink by the side of the pitch is not a good thing. It will not end well. Despite claims to say that people can drink sensibly, if you're seeing someone drink from 8 o'clock in the morning and the game doesn't kick off until 4, I don't know how sensible that is for anyone. But I'm a non-drinker, so I speak from a very biased position. I'd also travelled to football by the coach uh, from the south of a particular group of supporters for the same club. On the coach, there is no drinking. They take a very different method. They're mature in their outlook and demeanour. They travel with packed lunches. They travel with flasks of tea and coffee. And they come back with their flask and tea and coffee. I don't believe that they're actually interested in buying or drinking alcohol by the pitch because they're more interested in the day out and actually watching the game. And I'm not saying that those that drink aren't interested in the day out and they're not interested in the game. But the two groups of fans have a very different take on what they're going to football for and how they go and enjoy their football and what it means to them. I don't believe proposing drinks in seats or by the pitch side at football games will be a good thing. It never was a good thing before and I don't think it will be a good thing if it comes back. But we'll wait and see, because I don't drink. It's the simple. I don't drink. And if you want to look at it from a totally different position, if you were to talk about cinemas and movies where there are dedicated rooms, you can go and watch a film in a booth with your friends and your family, eat together, drink together, peaceably, behaviour levels are acceptable, and why wouldn't they be? You pay to go and watch something and listen. Football and alcohol on this planet and other planets, for me, 
I'm not saying they don't go well together, they probably do. But what they don't do is always equal good behavior. The two are an alien entity and uh, they don't mix at all. Elsewhere throughout the week, I bundled along, thumbing through the pages, and there was more transfer news about a particular club at the top of the league. A club who kind of went one way in terms of saying they were going to get rid of staff and then brought them back on side. And then they were expected to buy a particular player, but then they said they didn't have the money because they were actually paying uh, the, the staff that they kept on. Liverpool is the team I'm talking about. Liverpool, who have won back-to-back -back trophies, you know, doing so well. Their managers and their owners are, are really, really happy that they are looking to buy a player from a club who's just relegated. And that player is Jamal Lewis. They want him as a backup for Andy Robinson. He's the left-back for Norwich, and they see it as a decent buy. £10 million. £10 million as opposed to the hundred plus million pounds for another player from another club which I've just spoken about. The, the differences and disparity between players that are purchased by those chasing glory, chasing riches, chasing to be noticed and be claimed to be great again as opposed to those who have been successful and how prudent they are in their spending or proposed spending is very clear to see. This apparent decision um, it's not about them being tight with money. They're demonstrating a number of things. One, the owners of Liverpool believe that their, their manager can turn players from a struggling team into a great player. And they have proof. We've done it before. And we'll no doubt do it again. So it's interesting when you look at all of the transfer news from Manchester United and Liverpool to players they're chasing to the world of Arsenal and how they're going to pay for players that want to keep or get rid of players they don't want, how clubs go about spending the money, improving their squad and um, making the best out of what they have. Because, you know, at the end of the day, as we say, in terms of that footballing phrase well used, it is just football. So when we go beyond the world of football for a moment and we tiptoe in the grass of the everyday folk who have to contend with the possibility of losing their jobs as I've already mentioned Arsenal are proposing to make 55 of their staff redundant and push them outside of the football bubble into the world where people are losing their jobs they will no longer be employed at the club this is taking the this is actually taking place with the pandemic, with economic instability, with everything else. And I know we've mentioned those things, don't think, How, what has that got to do with sport? Everything has to do with sport right now. You want supporters and fans to spend money. And for them to have money, they need to have jobs. And if they don't have jobs, they won't buy the merchandise or won't be able to buy the pint by the pitch side when the game resumes. This is the disparity between club, player and supporter or the real world. Now, the 55 members of staff who are proposedly going to be moved on roughly will save around three million pounds. Three million. Player salaries are a thing of wonder to those with an ordinary job. 
Imagine being paid £250,000 each week as a cleaner or as a nurse or as even someone who we generally take for granted. Imagine if that individual who we really paid attention to was paid 250 grand a week. That would be boom time to the football world, boom time for the Premier League. They would have an, an endless revenue where they could tap into fans and supporters who have surplus cash to spend on replica kits and football boots and posters and all of the other fantastic things that they're trying to get people to buy. But they don't. In the real world, no one is being paid that amount of money. But football players are being paid that amount of money. And it would be believed that in the very same week that Arsenal ditch 55 individuals, they're promoting and trying to retain a very good player and give him an additional 50 to 60 or 70 thousand pounds on top of his weekly salary of two hundred thousand pounds a week the disparity between players and staff is huge the disparity between players and the general public is out of this world unbelievable basic maths would say something isn't right the basic maths of using sponsorship deals to pay the wages, the TV money, at some point in time, the golden egg will stop turning up. It will dry up, it will be no more. And when that happens, the football world would literally have to come back to basics, pay players at a decent wage, a living wage, and then engage in a conversation with fans and supporters who have their own responsibilities, financial outgoings, which they must pay before they can actually go to either one, watch the game, two, pay for the subscription so that they can watch the game, and anything else that you can add on in terms of additional kits, spare kits, shin pads, socks, you name it, posters, magazines, all of the above. It is strange. In the Mirror newspaper, the quote from Arsenal which was quite funny to read, um, which is here right now. Over the recent years, we have consistently invested in additional staff to take the club forward with the expected reduction of income in mind. It is now clear that we must reduce our costs further to ensure we are operating in a sustainable and responsible way and to enable us to continue to invest in our team, not your staff. Our aim has been to protect the jobs and base salaries of our people for as long as we possibly can. Unfortunately, we have now come to the point where we, we are proposing redundancies, end of quote. Somewhere along the line, we're going to start looking for leadership in the Premier League in terms of salary caps. We wait and see. We wait. But news of this in terms of getting rid of staff, spreads very, very quickly. In terms of spreading quickly, there is good news. There is a sensible way of thinking. There is a forward way of thinking. In Leagues 1 and 2, they have agreed a salary cap. Yes, that's right, a salary cap. All eyes now turn to the upper end of the football pyramid, and we wait, and we wait for leadership. 
However, leadership doesn't always develop from the front. It is usually developed from those who believe in leading and not just keeping the status quo. So well done, League One, and well done, League Two. Eyes are still facing towards the top of the football pyramid, and we still wait. We're waiting for leadership. Hopping over the channel in terms of the other news this week in mainland Europe, I saw something which was interesting, and I wasn't sure whether it would work. A hybrid form. Hybrid. Uh, the information was on the BBC web website. Um, in Holland, the Netherlands pilot the scheme to allow women to play in a senior team of men for the first time. The pilot has been approved by the Dutch FA. They've given permission for one woman to join the fourth tier team, uh, VB Forret, I believe, uh, in the seasons 2020 to 2022. Now, the KNVB, which is the Dutch FA, uh, stand for diversity and equality, and they believe that there is room for everyone in the game of football as it stands, everyone. And it's a very bold way to go about it, but I'm not sure if it's going to work. I mean, it sounds good in practice, but I'm not sure it will work long term. I mean, I'm, I've talked to a number of individuals, and I've been fortunate to discuss footballing careers with women who've played football professionally. And their experiences uh, seem similar at a certain point when they were young and they played football with boys at primary school and they enjoyed it. It was good. They enjoyed playing with the boys. It made them tougher and stronger and, and uh, more engaged. And, and then it stops when they get to their teenage years and it's different and they go another way and there's no, there wasn't the opportunity, nor was there the uh, interest, nor was there, and I say the interest from those offering sports. But to offer the same access, you know, much later in life when men are fully developed, taller, stronger, faster, I'm not going to say fitter. It changes the, like, the dynamic a little bit in terms of how women may enjoy the game as, as opposed to what it was like when they were at primary school. It may not be the same experience being hit or shoulder barged by a full grown man. What would that be like? Many in the game may welcome it, but it is just a pilot. And I am not sure, not that I don't want it to work, I'm just not sure that it will work because of physicality and strength and to a degree speed, but not always, not always. Men's bodies and women's bodies, they're different in terms of their structure and in terms of the way they move how that will go about, whether men will actually have to think twice about how they tackle, whether they are reckless in their game, as we have seen or has been witnessed from time to time in certain games, depending on if it's a cup game. Do we want to see something like that in a mixed game? I don't personally, but it could happen and I don't want anything to be let's say, detrimental to the game, but we will wait and see. Popping back over, hip hopping, body popping in the press, back to the sidelines and the latest on five guys called Mo, or as I like to call them, five subs on the go. Now, when the football uh, returns with the Premier League reboots and championship and everywhere else across Europe, probably mainly here, the use of five substitutes, it was three, then five, and uh, it was used 
very, very well. There were mid-game breaks, there were liquid refreshments, all deemed and geared up to um, protect the players long-term because playing football at this time of the year is unusual for many unless they're, they're in the World Cup. But there was a vault. The vault was not to continue with the five substitutes next season because it was believed or alleged that it would benefit the top six clubs. Those top six clubs who have much more money to spend on players, who have a better second 11 than other teams in the league, they have greater access to finances so they can bring players in with enhanced wages and salaries. I, again, I'm not sure, but from the decisions that are made, it would seem that there is an inequality in football, as we already know. Uh, there's an, uh, the world is full with inequality in the men and women's game, between the men and women's game, between the boys' academies and women's game, all of it. There's inequality and access and issues. But the issue about five substitutes talks about the privilege of the rich the privilege of the richest clubs and how they will try and use it for their own betterment with regards to using those the players that they have been allowed to purchase or been able to purchase more frequently than if they were restricted to only three substitutes. There are many aspects of the game that need changing. Some of them are the rules, like the offside rule, the use of VAR, but the one on substitutes it's a very contentious one and some may say it shouldn't be and using more substitutes makes the game more interesting, possibly so, possibly so. Uh, but it's an unspoken truth about the privilege of clubs with money and how they perceive themselves to be victims in spite of their success. In spite of their riches, they seem to act like two-year-old childs having a tantrum jumping up and down on their parents' bed. They demand to be looked at, they demand to be noticed, and they want things their way. Well, with regards to the five subs on the go, the big six have been told in no uncertain terms, back in your box, this league isn't just for you. And before I end, uh, we go on to the life of a black football player, which is interesting, always interesting stars they do well but this was a story that jumped out at me literally in the press when Danny Rose of Tottenham Hotspurs who's currently been or was on loan at Newcastle shared his experiences of being stopped by the police on numerous occasions because of his car and you know I wondered how many other footballers have been stopped in their day-to-day -day lives generally how many times had Gary Lineker been stopped in his car by the police? How many times had Alan Shearer been stopped in his car by the police? How many times had Paul Scholes been stopped in his car by the police? How many times had Frank Lampard been stopped in his car by the police? I mean, I could go on, but I am curious to find out if there is any research as to how many times a football player has been stopped while driving their car and what the breakdown of these figures are and what would they tell us? Would there be a disparity in how many times black footballers are stopped as opposed to their European-looking colleagues? Danny Rose was stopped driving his car near his mum's home and they said he was driving badly. Racism 
and some will say this is bold, but racism isn't just in America, it is everywhere. Until next time everyone, this is The Sunday Show, I'm Rodney Cyrus, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please do give it a rating from 1 to 5, hopefully 5, and I will see you all very, very soon, take care, bye for now, thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh,